Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 7 this morning, continue. We're going to finish off chapter 7, believe it or not, this morning. We've been looking at uh, Matthew chapter 7 for several weeks, and um, we've kind of taken a, a path here through um, two gates and two ways and two kingdoms and two kind of teachings, and now we're at a point where we're going to look at a story of two uh, men, two builders uh, this morning. You know, one thing, when you, you go over to the Middle East and you notice that um, the air the ground is arid, the ground is dry, the air is arid, and it's, it's a lot like um, our weather here in California, you might say. And uh, much like us here in California, they have some uh, problems now and then with uh, it rains too much and the ground can't soak it up and it causes floods and everything. So the example that Jesus uses this morning was one that was very uh, practical for them. And he wants them to understand clearly that unless you have a good foundation laid down um, as a builder, you're going to run into problems uh, sooner or later. And so we look at these two, uh, these two men in this story that, that Jesus is going to tell. And I'll just read it for us here. And Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see the story here of one man who is obviously building a house and doesn't think about a solid foundation while he's building the house. In verse 26 where he's referred to as a foolish man. The other man builds his house on the foundation of the rock. He's referred to as the wise man. Now, this is kind of a <clears throat> simple story. <clears throat> but it's really a kind of a profound commentary on a lot of people, even within the church today, that hear the words of Jesus, but they don't do the words of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine. Look at what he says down in verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine. They're both hearing the words of Christ. Christ is talking about people who hear his message and understand it. Wise men do something about it. <laughs> Pretty simple. And fools don't. 
That's kind of what it boils down to. Now remember, Jesus is kind of closing out this Sermon on the Mount here with this great invitation that he gave in verses 13 and 14, where he's talking about the entering the narrow gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and he's, he's compelling people to enter the narrow gate. And remember, we talked about that, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to be saved today. The gospel that's out there that people are telling everybody, oh, you just, all you have to do is just trust Jesus. Just put your faith in Jesus. Just sign on this card. Just raise your hand, whatever it takes. That's a false gospel. That's not the gospel of Christ. Christ said just the opposite. He said, enter by the narrow gate. And then he says in verse 14, or the end of verse 13, uh, or the end of, of the beginning of verse 14, excuse me, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. It's not easy to get saved. And the more we tell people that, the more problems we have. It's difficult to get saved. Because you've got to go through that very, very narrow gate. And there's only one gate, he says there, that leads to life. There's not many. There's not two. But both of these gates, both the broad and the narrow, both say this way to heaven. One's deceived. The others are not. One's telling the truth, one's not. And remember, at the crossroads of life, right here at these gates where they intersect and where you have to make a choice, where, where, where life is, is basically ushered into eternity, at that crossroads, there's false teachers, and we talked about them, and they're, they're wooing people to the broad way. Just come this way. It's easy. It's easy. Come this way. And you have many churches today that are very big because the gospel that they're teaching is not the true gospel of the Bible. And so the Lord says you have to enter by the narrow gate. It's not going to be easy because all these false prophets and all these deceivers are going to be out there trying to get you on the Broadway. And it's also not going to be easy because as just as human beings, we tend to deceive ourselves. We talked a little bit about that last week. In verses 21 to 23, we read that this morning. Do you think these people thought they were on their way to heaven? They definitely did. And yet they were deceived. In the end, all that they did, all the prophecies, all the demon casting out that they did, all the wonders that they did in Christ's name, they went before him and they said, Lord, Lord. They even called him Lord. And Jesus still said, I don't even know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, there's a very important message for us here. Can we be deceived into believing that we're a Christian when maybe we're not? The answer is yes. And I believe the churches are full of people that think because they carry a Bible or because they made some profession of faith at one point in their life somewhere along the line or they memorize some verses or they know some theology or something like that, that somehow they're just, you know, they they become a Christian. That's not what becoming a Christian is all about. Just mere knowledge of who Christ is does not make you a Christian. People will deceive themselves either way. Either they'll profess that they're Christians and they'll convince themselves of that even though there's no evidence in their lives. They look at their lives and their lives are in shambles. They don't see Christ working at all. But I know that I'm going to hold on to my faith. Maybe they don't have any faith. Maybe sometimes when people come to us and say, you know, I'm just struggling in all these different areas in my faith, and they're coming to us as Christians, maybe the best thing we could do to them is say, you know what, have you ever thought that maybe you're not a Christian? 
Maybe you've never put your faith, your trust in Christ in a legitimate way. Because when you do that, beloved, what happens? Your life changes. Check it out in the Scriptures. Whenever someone committed their life to Christ and followed Christ, their life was radically changed. And today in our churches, when someone gets saved and they're all gung-ho for Jesus, it's almost like we have to keep them away from the other people who've been saved for a while because we don't want them to rub off on them. You know, it's silly. I mean, when you're legitimately saved, when you're legitimately redeemed by the blood of Christ, you see Christ working in your life, whether you like it or not, sometimes. Some people just have a mere knowledge that seems, well, you know, that's, that's good enough. I know all this stuff. And they know a lot about Christianity, but they don't know the Christ of Christianity. Well, today in verses 24 to 27, the Lord reminds us that we have to meet His standard of righteousness. See, it's not about who we are and what we do and where we serve and all those things. I mean, you know what? I mean, Ken, I appreciate you kind of reminding me all the things that I do. And that's, I know it's gracious, and, 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 and that's great. But do you think God's up there going, whoa, I'm impressed? No. Nor should we be. Nor should we be. very important thing because it's easy to grab a hold of those things and rationalize in our mind that somehow we're okay with God because we do a bunch of stuff. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. It doesn't matter how much you know or how fervently you are about your religious spiritual activity. That has nothing to do with your walk with Christ. Hopefully it's an outgrowth of it. But it has nothing to do with establishing that. He talks here about two builders. You notice in verse 24, he says, Whoever hears these sayings of mine, and then once again he says it down in verse 26. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine. The Lord is referring to people who obviously have heard the message. They've heard his message. And then at the end of verse 24 and at the end of verse 26, we read of two men here, and and the story says that they're building houses. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody build a house, but it's kind of neat. I watched Ken Saragusa and Ken LaPointe uh, build John's house, basically rebuild it. And it was pretty impressive. And you start with almost nothing. You've got to put the walls up and the roof. And, I mean, it's amazing how it all comes together. But here are people that these two guys are building their houses. They lift, listen to the message. They're involved in some sort of spiritual activity. They both are builders. They both belong to the visible body of believers. In other words, they're there in church. They're visible. Both men probably read Scripture. Both men probably attend the meetings at the church. And they probably have some sort of spiritual value system they they live their life by. But you notice the one major difference here between these two guys. It says one man is wise because he what? He builds on what? What's it say? The rock. The other man is foolish because he builds on the what? The sand. One thing that we like to do once in a while is uh, uh, 
kind of drive around this beautiful area of ours. And uh, when we drive around, we like to go to nice neighborhoods and look at their nice houses. Okay. Do you ever do that? Just drive around. Man, I think if we lived there. You know, sometimes I drive my motorcycle up, you know, uh, 84 there, Woodside. There's a couple houses there that are just like, man, party the church could have in that house. Good night. You know, I mean, just, it's just fun to think that way. But then I think, wow, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible. I've never once driven by one of those houses and said to my wife, man, honey, check out the foundation on that baby. That, that just looks incredible. You ever done that? Driven by a nice house and look at the, look at the foundation on that. Why? Because usually you don't see the foundation after the building is built, do you? For all you know, that beautiful building could be resting on a crumbling foundation. Matter of fact, have you ever watched any of the, the uh, do-it-yourself networks, you know, uh, uh, this old house, that kind of thing? You know, they're always taking these older houses or whatever. Recently, they, they've taken a barn and they took it down to the stone foundation. And they emphasized how important it was to make sure that this foundation was secure, even though you're, a lot of it you're not even going to see after the house is built. Once the building is up, you don't know what kind of foundation is laid. That's why when before you buy a house, what do you do? You have a building inspector come over. I remember when before we moved into Jeddah, Ken LaPointe came over and he said, well, we're going to inspect this house. He put on this funny-looking thing and he climbed under the house. I said, where are you going? He said, i got to check the foundation. That's the most important thing. The foundation's not secure. Anything else you do in the house is irrelevant. So it becomes difficult to tell what kind of foundation exists just by looking at a building. Just like it's difficult to tell a true Christian from one who's been deceived and is not a Christian at all. Because sometimes we don't see the foundation. We see everything else. We see all the religious activity. We see everything else that's in their life and we say, well, yeah, they must be a believer. And they may even look at themselves and say, yeah, look at me. See, true Christians can be deceived about who is truly a Christian and who is not. And what our Lord is saying here is very simple. He says many people hear Christ's teachings. Many people hear it. But it's only those who obey His teachings are those that get into the kingdom. That's the bottom line. Are you doing what Christ has instructed you to do? If you examine your life and you find that you're a hearer and not a doer, as James says, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're a Christian. If you're not doing what Christ has told you to do in His Word, and a lot of what He tells us to do is pretty plain and pretty simple, then you might want to check out your foundation. Jesus said here that a storm is coming along. And basically, it's going to mark out who is wise and who is foolish in the end. Now, there's some similarities between these, these two guys in this story. First of all, they both built a house. <laughs> They're both involved in some sort of house-building activity, or you might call it spiritual activity that has to do with the kingdom of God. Secondly, they both built their houses, it seems, in the same general location. If you read the story, true believers and false believers in, inevitably are side by side. And it's not that one says, I'm a false believer, and the other one says, no, I'm a true... You know, you can't tell. 
They attend the same church. They attend Bible study. They even go to prayer meeting. Both of the buildings here are even similar. That is kind of, you can't really distinguish between who built which one in the end. In fact, both men build their homes the same way. Because the Lord says the only difference in this story between these two houses is their foundation. That's the only difference. Probably use the same blueprints for everything else from there up. The only difference is their foundation. Both of these guys in a Christian context carry a Bible. Both of them carry a notebook. Both of them pray and give and participate in certain religious activities. And everything they do, when you look at them, it looks identical. You can't tell them apart. The only difference is what really matters, and that is what is their foundation? What are they built upon? Only an honest, soul-searching examination of yourself can reveal that truth. And see, that's what Jesus tries to get the Pharisees to see here. He's talking, remember, to the religious leaders of the day here. He's dealing with them. And he's saying what their false teaching is against his true teaching. And the differences there are, are kind of clear. I mean, one built his house upon the rock. That word rock means rock bed. Petras. It means, you know, uh, a rock. Or Petra, it means a rock bed. There's another word, Petras, that means a stone or, or a, a boulder. This wise man built his house on a rock bed. Verse 26 says, The other man built his house on the sand. And that that word in the, the original language means sand from the seashore. Have you ever gone to the seashore and you stand there in the waves? Maybe in Hawaii or somewhere where it's nice and warm. Here you'd probably freeze your toes off. But you know, you stand there in the waves in the sun, and the waves come in, and they go out, and they come in, and they go out. What happens under your feet? You start to sink. The sand just kind of just washes away, and you begin to sink down and down. Pretty soon, you know, you're up to the middle of your calf. Feels kind of good, but I mean, if you keep standing there, pretty soon you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time getting out. That's the kind of sand we're talking about. Sand that's easily washed around. And this, the, the man of, is wise when he builds his house on a rock bed. The man is foolish if he builds on the shifting sands of the sea or the desert, you might say. And when we looked at these false prophets in verse 15 to 20, one commentator said basically they're the real estate agents that are selling you the foundations on sand. That's what they are. The real estate agents that are selling you sandy Soil. They're selling you foundations on sandy soil. They're not houses built on the rock. And verse 27 tells us what will happen to that house that is built on sand. It says, The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. And what? What happened to it? It fell. It fell. Because it didn't have a proper foundation. See, you have to understand, the Pharisees of Jesus' day had no regard for the spirituality of the soul. Theirs was purely an external religion. 
They had no purity of heart or integrity in their behavior or obedience to God. They weren't interested in that. They just wanted to look good to everybody. Remember, they'd put on robes and they'd fast and put ashes on their heads and they'd go out in the corner and pray some big righteous prayer and everybody'd look at him and go, Ooh, look at that guy. He looks spiritual because look at the way he's dressed and look at the words he's using when he prays. That always cracks me up when a believer tells me, well, you know, I, I don't like to pray in public. I don't like to pray because, you know, I, I just, I'm afraid I'm not using the right words. I always want to go, who are you talking to? <laughs> you think you're, you're talking to everybody else in the group? Hopefully you're talking to God. I remember when I first went to Christian college, we dorm room, we sat in a, a prayer time and the guy said, okay, we'll see why you lead us in prayer. Fine. You know, so start the circle going around. Oh, I prayed. I prayed in my heart. These poor guys are waiting for me to pray. I already prayed. I'm done. I'm thinking, what are we still sitting here for? Because as a Catholic, I didn't feel comfortable praying out loud in front of people. Former Catholic, I should say. Finally, the guy, oh boy, are you going to pray? Dude, I already prayed. We didn't hear you. I said, well, I wasn't praying to you. You know, I mean, it's common sense. Don't be intimidated like that. It doesn't matter if you stammer or stammer over your words. You know, God understands perfectly what's in your heart. And we have to remember what prayer is. It's talking to God. It's not talking to everybody else in the group. They didn't care about that, the Pharisees. They were just worried about impressing everybody. And they were building their spiritual structures, which were humongous, on sand. And Jesus was pointing that out to them. They prayed, they fasted, they gave alms, they did everything that they were supposed to do in their minds. And it was purely an external performance. And you know what? They didn't make it, they didn't make it through the narrow gate. Their gate was the broad gate. Well, who is this wise man here? I, I believe it's really talking about a true believer, someone who is truly has engaged in a relationship with Christ. Well, what does it mean to build your life, if that's true, for a believer, what does it mean to build your life on the rock? What, how, how, how do we deal with that? What, what are we talking about here? Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock. You know what? The Pharisees claim to have their lives built on God. We could also say that the rock is Christ. Peter mentioned Christ as the chief cornerstone in 1 Peter 2.6. Paul said that he's the rock in 1 Corinthians 10.4. The thing we have to remember, beloved, is there's more to building on the rock than just saying that your life is built on Christ. You look through different commentaries, most of them say that this rock is God or this rock is Christ. But this is what I love about teaching through the Bible because the Bible tells us what the rock is, doesn't it? Look at verse 24. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and what? Does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. What is the rock? The rock is basically the Word of God. It's those people, the wise, or those people who hear and do what Christ commanded them to do. They're the ones that are building their house on the rock. Over in Matthew 16, also we have another text that deals with this. You just turn over there, Matthew 16, verse 13. 
says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I am? Uh, say that the Son of uh, Man... <laughs> who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's a weird sentence structure. Verse 14. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? You notice he redirects it to them. He wants to hear it from their lips. Verse verse, uh, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on in verse 18 and he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. He uses the word petros, which means a pebble or a little boulder. And he says, upon this rock, Petra, a rock bed foundation, I will build my church. Now, beloved, this is not Pope Peter starting the Catholic Church saying, upon this rock. That's not, that's such a poor interpretation of what this Bible is saying to us. I know Catholics all over want us to believe, well, this is where the Catholic Church got to start. No, it's not. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that Peter was a pope. It doesn't say anything like that. That's a fairy tale. And it's not the rock. The Catholic Church is not the rock that he's going to build the church on. Christ is saying, I'm the rock. My words are the rock. He says very clearly upon that affirmation of truth, I will build my church. That's what he's telling him. It means the same thing back in Matthew 7.24. See, the Word of God is our foundation. If we have any other foundation, we're building on sand. It provides us a foundation. It provides us with the materials that we need for building. The Lord is saying here that the person who only hears God's Word but doesn't act on it is building on sand. Pretty simple. What's the sand represent? Well, you can say it represents our own human agenda, our own will, our own opinion, our own attitudes towards life. What are we supposed to do with them? We're supposed to bring them into subjection to what the Word of God says. See, the foolish person builds his life on the shifting sands of human philosophy, saying, well, this is how I feel today, so this is how I'm going to live today. Well, that's not going to wash in the end. Or maybe it is. This is going to wash away. He just listens to Christ's words. Therefore, he's not established on the rock. That's what Christ is clearly saying in Matthew 7. See, but the wise man, on the other hand, he hears God's word, hears the same words the foolish man hears, but he builds his life on it. He lives a life of obedience to God's word. In John 8.30 It says that Jesus, as Jesus spoke, it says, many believed on him. In John, Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 30. In other words, they listened to him. And then in verse 31, it says this, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. See, if we just hear and believe something, that doesn't mean anything. That means absolutely nothing.
See, it's when you continue in the things that you hear and that you believe in, and then they begin to make a change in your life. Then all of a sudden your verbal claims of Christianity match up to your life. That's when you start to see, hey, you know what? I am saved. This is refreshing. God is working in my life. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago or five years ago or a year ago because I see God continually working on the sin in my life. He's constantly convicting me. He's constantly building me up in my faith. Don't be deceived because you make some verbal claim that you're a Christian. Unless you build your life upon biblical truth, you're deceiving yourself. In other words, if you look at your life and you look at what the Bible says and say, well, you know, I'm sure God will understand in the end. No, He won't. No, He won't. See, we've bought into this age of grace kind of mentality where we think that, well, everything is just covered under God's grace. So, you know, if I don't do everything God tells me to do, it's okay. He'll save me anyway. That's not what I read. In the, in, the, in the words of Scripture. As a matter of fact, over in James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. He points it out clearly. He continues in verse 23, For if anyone be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. In other words, you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror. you got stuff all over the place. You know, you're all messed up. And you go, oh well, and you just walk out the door. I mean, what would be the use to save the time and don't even look in the mirror? Since he beholds himself and goes away and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. See, sometimes, and us as believers, we have to be reminded sometimes of what kind of manner of men we are. We have to be constantly reminded, you know what, you're not all that righteous. Who do you think you are? You know, in a very real way, I was reminded of this, and I'm not going to go into the details, but several weeks ago. I mean, I was reminded of this in a way that I just, I just thought this way. I've never even have an issue with this. And I found myself in a possible compromising situation. Didn't even dawned on me that it was a compromising situation really till afterwards. And I thought, wow, scary. See, we have to be doers of the Word because we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all in this boat together and we need God's grace every day. But we also need to do what God has instructed us to do. Colossians 1.21 says, And you that were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now he is reconciled. If you continue in faith, grounded and settled. In other words, there's something about our faith that has to continue. It's not good enough to come to church on Sunday, hear a message and say, yeah, I agree with that, and then go out and live like the devil. That's not true salvation. 1 John 2.3 says... By this we do know that we know Him. So many times people come and say, well, you know, I don't know. How do you know if you're a Christian or not? I mean, you know, you're preaching these messages and I'm beginning to doubt my salvation. You know what my answer is? Good. It's about time some church people started doubting their salvation. Instead of just sitting back in the armchairs of grace and saying, oh, well, God says He'll save us no matter what. It's about time we started examining our lives. 
Because it says, by this do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It's very clear. Both the Lord and the apostle over and over again, they stated the importance of obeying God's word. Now, are you going to do it perfectly? Are you saying you have to live perfectly, Steve? No, I'm not. Any one of us fall in a myriad of ways into sin almost daily. But there should be a burning desire in our hearts to live a righteous life for God and to do everything we can to do exactly what His Word says to the best of our ability as we're filled with the Spirit. Titus 1.16 says, they, he's talking about unbelievers there, Titus 1.16, he says, unbelievers profess, in other words, they say that they know God, but when you look at their works, they deny them being abominable and disobedient. See, if you verbally profess to be a Christian, and you know some things about Christianity, but there's no obedience in your life at all, you're deceived. You're simply deceived. You need to stop and you need to examine your life because you're not saved. You may think you're saved, but I can guarantee you you're not. Building your life on the rock means being obedient, doing what God tells us to do. That's why we're called to examine, to see whether we're in the faith or not. And that's not just a one-time examination. Last week we talked about when we lead people to the Lord, sometimes, you know, they, they make a profession of Christ, and then we send them on their way, and we say, now don't ever doubt that. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not a Christian. I heard you pray this prayer. You think that's, that's what saves you? That's not what saves you. It's living for Christ is what saves you. Being obedient to Him. Not just externally, because the Pharisees could do that. But it's in, in your heart. What's your motive? See, a lot of people, I think, are, are, quote, Christians just for the very fact they don't want to go to hell. That's the only reason why they're making the claim to cry, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to burn in hell, everlasting torment forever and ever, so I guess I'll go down this road. And if it gives me a little peace here and there, well, that's even better. But you look at their life, and their life is a wreck. Do you desire more than anything else to obey the Word of God? That's That's a good test right there. I'm not saying you do it. I'm just saying there's a desire within you to say, you know what? You start every day going, God, just help me get through this day without falling into this sin or falling into that sin or saying this or saying that or having this attitude. It's a desire. It's an inner desire that God puts within you. And you're not complacent about it. You're not satisfied until God takes you through a day where you're living in the Spirit. Or do you live in disobedience to the Word of God And rather than feeling God's conviction in your life, you try to justify it. I'm sure he understands. Busy weekend. Busy week at crazy. I'm sure he understands why I treat my wife. You know, I mean, you know, look, look, I'm not talking about you, dear. I'm just saying in general, us guys tend to shift blame a lot of times. I'm sure everybody would understand. I mean, we just do that. Or I'm sure if people understood my boss, they'd know why I don't work 40 hours a week, even though I'm getting paid, paid for 40 hours a week. I mean, we justify everything today. 
See, obedience is really the key word here. It's the only validation that you ever have of your salvation is a life of obedience. That's the only real way that you can prove that you honestly recognized who Jesus Christ was, that He's the Lord of your life. If you don't obey God's Word, your confession about Jesus as Lord, Christ as Lord, is irrelevant. We see that because they went before Jesus and they said, Lord, Lord. And He said, I don't even know who you're talking to. I don't even know who you are. If you don't obey God's Word, your confession of Christ as Lord is is mere verbal exercise. See, but the life that is built on the rock is the kind of life that's described in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember? You remember what we went through when we went through the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? A true believer has a proper biblical view toward themselves. The person who builds his life on the rock preserves the, the world and lights it up because of the salt and the light of the world. They don't seek to alter the Bible. They don't seek for that verse to justify their sin. No, they say, you know what? This is sin and I I need to change my life to line up with the Bible, not change the Bible to line up with my life. I read an article, I think it was Friday or Saturday in the San Jose Mercury News. It talks about, the heading was churches debating Prop 8, you know, the gay marriage thing. And I thought, okay, what, what? And it mentioned a church a Baptist church, first Baptist church, I'll just say it, of Palo Alto. And this pastor basically said, well, I can't believe that, you know, I'm an evangelical, and I can't believe why pastors would be, you know, uh, out to try to push this thing through. We need to love everybody. After all, God is love, and Jesus is... And I thought, man, this guy's got, you know, some rocks in his head or something. I mean, how can you read the Bible honestly and say, you know what, it's okay for this to happen. We'll go ahead and marry you too, even even though, you know, the Bible says it's wrong over and over and over and over and over again ad nauseum, but that's okay. We're going to set this aside and we're going to show you love. We're going to show you tolerance. We're going to show you acceptance. I just thought, man, talk about somebody who's deceived. We have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, is our Christianity only external or is it internal as well? Is it changing our heart? Because the the person in in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, clearly, I mean, he has a biblical attitude toward his words, toward the deeds, toward the motives, toward money, toward things, toward religious activities, toward people. He spoke of all those things. We, We went through all those things when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you're committed to obedience, then you're building on the rock. You're not building on the shifting sand. We need to take a hard look at this. If you're not obedient to the principles that we've learned in the last several months in the Sermon on the Mount, you may not be a believer. I'll just say, you may be deceived. You know, you don't become a Christian just by making some decision or raising your hand or signing a card. That's not what makes you a Christian. True salvation is marked by a recognition of God's divine standards. I love this quote. Experiencing an overwhelming sense of sinfulness and pleading for God to be merciful and give you His righteousness because you desire to live for Him. 
When's the last time we sang a a worship song or a hymn or a praise song that reminded us of our overwhelming sense of sinfulness? Seems like a lot of the songs today are kind of sinfulness light. You know, it's all about grace and love and mercy. You know, sometimes we, we need to be reminded that we are mere sinners and by the grace of God we're saved, not by something we do. You can't say, well, I'm going to come to Christ, but I, you know, I'm not going to worry about this obedience thing. It doesn't, it doesn't line up that way. If you say that, you're not a Christian because you don't understand what the true gospel says. Have you ever run into somebody and, you know, maybe, I mean, a real practical thing, you know, sometimes people, uh, I even have some in my family that, you know, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I made this commitment, you know. What, where are you going to church? Well, I don't go to church. What do you mean you don't go to church? I mean, it's very clear. The Bible says that as a Christian, you're to, you're to get together and fellowship and pray and come under the teaching of the Word of God in a church with other believers. That's unmistakably clear in the New Testament. Oh, I know, but you know those churches. What are they doing? They're justifying themselves. Maybe they're deceived. You look at this foolish man and you look at the way he builds his house. It's obviously in a hurry. It's in a hurry because he doesn't want to dig down into the the bedrock. He doesn't want to build his house the right way. He wants to do it in a hurry. You know, fools are always in a hurry. I've got to be careful because I'm kind of talking about myself. You know, I'm always in a hurry, it seems. But Proverbs said what? A fool makes, uh, uh, you know, haste. And, and that's so important. And you know what? It's, it's very important to understand to do things the right way. If it takes some extra time, that's fine. You know, this last week I was working on a sign for my wife for our Christmas, to add to our Christmas decorations. It's not that we need anything to add to them. But for years she wanted a sign that says, Happy Birthday, Jesus. So I got this plywood out, and I'm in my garage, and, you know, I got this la- the letters all marked out and everything, and, and I'm out there with a the router. And, you know, I mean, guys that know use routers, you know, you've got to be careful because I'm kind of making an indentation, routing out the letters in this plywood. And I thought, you know, and the whole time I'm thinking, my luck, I'm going to get all the way done, you know, on the last S of Jesus, and I'm going to burn, you know, through the rest of them or something because I'm impatient. But God got me through it, you know. Some of the letters are a little bigger than others because I did tend to, you know, route a little more than I should. But for the most part, it looks okay. But I've learned that you have to take time in certain things. You can't just rush through things. A fool doesn't care. They're always looking for shortcuts. They're always looking for somehow to to, to make haste and, and putting on a good show for everybody. They don't take time to build a sense of, of, of this foundation that we're talking about. You know, when we, when we share our faith with somebody, when we evangelize, when we share Christ, when we share the gospel with somebody, it's important to make sure that we take time to allow that sense of conviction to take place. You know, a person has to understand the doctrine of sin before they need a Savior. A, fur, a foolish person doesn't come to grips with his own sin before God. And we have this quick, kind of a canned approach to everything today. And so quick evangelism, basically, all it does is it attracts fools to the church. That's why a lot of churches are full, uh, full of, of unbelievers. 
You have to take time, Luke 14, 28 says, when you're building a tower to count the cost. So he does everything with haste. He's also superficial. There's many people who say that they believe in Jesus Christ and they accept the gospel, and yet there's no evidence at all in their lives to confirm it. That's a superficial commitment to Christ. We read some statistics last week. You know, millions of people profess to be Christians. And they just come to Christ for what they want to get. They come to Christ in this postmodern era for their felt needs to be met. That's a superficial conversion. And they're not legitimate. There's no foundation. There's no brokenness of heart. Arthur Pink said this in his exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, If I have never mourned over my waywardness, I have no solid ground for rejoicing. We need to mourn over our waywardness. We need to realize that we're the sinners that the Bible tells us. Spurgeon said this, Want of depth, want of sincerity, want of reality in religion. This is the want of our times. Want of an eye to God in religion. Lack of sincere dealing with one's soul. Neglect of using the lancet with our hearts. Neglect of the search warrant which God gives out against sin. Careless concerning living upon Christ. Much reading about him, much talking about him, but too little feeding upon his flesh and drinking of his blood. These are the causes of a tottering profession and baseless hopes. See, while a foolish man is in a hurry, the wise man is not. He's not in a hurry. He takes time. Once again, Pink said in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, there are some who say they are saved before they have any sense that they're lost. There are some who say that they're saved before they even understand that they're lost because we've cheapened the gospel so much. Someone said some people present the gospel so poorly that even unbelievers don't know enough to reject it. See, those who claim Christ as their own are willing to dig deep. They're willing to take the time to do what needs to be done. A wise person counts the cost. They also give maximum effort. If you've ever dug in bedrock, it's difficult to lay a foundation in bedrock. As a matter of fact, the other day I was watching one of those shows, and they had this, it was the same barn thing on on your old house, and they came to this part of the rock, which was a bedrock, and they said, what do you do about this? He goes, well, either you've got to build the house around it or you've got to get rid of it. Well, how do you get rid of it? Well, it's difficult. They had to bring in this great big machine and just hammer the thing out. I mean, you know, it took them like a day to get rid of this small piece of rock because it was so solid. But it took effort. But they knew the importance of having a good foundation, so they put forth the effort. Men are always drawn to the broad way, beloved. That's our default. We want to go down the easy way. One church in America, in one year it says they had 28,000 people who professed to be converted. They had 9,600 of those people baptized in their church. And when asked, well, how has this affected the attendance at the church? They said, well, we added 123 members. Out of 28,000? You think that's good? Something's wrong there. 
Somebody's being led down the wrong path. You know, some people say that, well, you know, when, when, when the reason is, is because, you know, people fall away. And, and you know, so when they, when they make this profession of Christ, it's very important to get them in a follow-up program. Get them in a discipleship program. Get them in, you know, so we can, you know, teach them all these things. I mean, I understand the importance of that, but I also understand from having gone through it, the importance of relying on God. You don't think the Holy Spirit, you don't think God cares for somebody who's, who's a recent convert? You don't think that he's going to follow up with that person? I mean, there are people who are in foreign countries who have nobody to care for them. And they're doing pretty good. Because their faith is real. See, so many times we take these false professions of faith and we don't wait to see if it's real or not. And then we just start indoctrinating them into the teachings of the church. And so they learn how to be a Christian. When you come to church, you know, you're not supposed to smoke at church, so, you know, it's okay to <laughs> I mean, all these silly things. And they're conforming their life to what they see around them, just like anybody else would do. And then they're deceived and they think, well, yeah, I, I, I'm one of these people. I'm, I'm a Christian. I just keep on telling me that, telling myself that. The Bible says that if we're truly a believer, we'll follow his commands. The person who digs deep strives to enter the narrow way. It's not easy. It's difficult. So he gives maximum effort. He also is teachable. He's teachable. A man who digs deep wants to do things right. See, the Pharisees weren't teachable in Jesus' time. They didn't want to hear anything that wasn't from their side of the the tracks. You couldn't tell them anything. You know, there's people today that profess Christ, and yet they don't want to count the cost. They don't want to be obedient to him. And they don't want to hear about it either. And when you share it with them, you're just being intolerant or ungraceful or judgmental. And a lot of times it's not because these Christians are unteachable. It's because they're not even Christians. But they've deceived themselves into thinking they are. The Bible says that we should hide God's word in our hearts so we will not sin against him. As Christians, we're not to walk around with a proud chest saying, oh, look at me, I'm Mr. Spiritual. No, we should be better off graveling in the dirt saying, woe is me, a sinner. true believer doesn't build his life around visions and experiences and miracles, but he builds them on the words of God and his obedience to that word. Because in the end of our text, it tells us what's going to happen. A storm's coming. It says in verse 27, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Great was its fall. Now you can go through a lot of different teachings and commentaries on, well, uh, the wind means this and the rain. You know, I think it just means a storm came and blew the house down. I think that's what it means. It doesn't mean anything more than that. How do we relate that to our Christian life? Do you think that, you know, we're going to go through trials? Do you think that we're going to go through tribulations in our Christian life? Sure. Christ promises that. 
I mean, do you think that if maybe you live down in the area of Louisiana or maybe even areas of the, the southern coast there where they've been hit with all these floods, flood after flood after flood, when you, you went to buy a house there, do you think maybe you would see if this is in the flood zone or not? I think maybe that would just happen to, you know, enter into your mind? I think it probably would. You know, around here, we don't have to do that as much. But you probably want to know if you're on a fault or not. Right? I mean, you know, you're not going to be building your house on the Hayward Fault, hopefully. That'd be kind of silly. We need to stop and we need to, to look at these things because you know what? Trials do come. And it's so important. Are you built on the firm foundation of Christ's word and is your, is your life living in, in obedience to his, his word? Because if it is, you're going to be okay. It doesn't matter what the trial is. God will get you through it because you're his. But if you're not so sure, if you haven't gotten down under your house and dug around and looked for some sandy soil under your foundation and maybe the, the, the foundation's already crumbling just because the house looks great, You know, we need to take time to examine ourselves. I just want to close with this in Revelation. It tells us very clearly what will happen in verse 11 to 15. He says, And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small, great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was also cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Whosever name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate judgment that's coming for those outside of Christ. That passage describes the great white throne judgment where God separates true believers from false believers for eternity. You may be sitting here this morning and you may have deceived yourself into believing that somehow you're a Christian when your life just doesn't measure up at all. But that's okay. It's not okay. And it's time for you to turn your heart to God and and to ask Him to show you your sinfulness. To give you that brokenness. To give you that repentance that's needed. God forbid one day you would be standing before God, Lord, Lord, and hear the reply, depart from me, I never, ever knew you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as in the closing verse, it says these people who heard the teachings of Jesus were astonished. In other words, it blew their mind what he had said to them because he taught them as one having authority. The very word of God was teaching them. Lord, this morning, we pray that the word of God would teach our hearts. Lord, that each one in this place would examine their life. That each person in this room would take an honest assessment of their foundation. 
in their present life and say, either this measures up or it doesn't. Either I've trusted Christ and he's made a difference in my life or he hasn't. Either way, we have to come before God and we have to cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, we don't want to live our lives as Christians constantly doubting your faithfulness. That's not what this is talking about. But Lord, when we feel the conviction of sin in our lives and we respond positively to it, that affirms your hand is at work in our lives and hearts. Lord, if we can continue living in any way we want, and there's no conviction, then, Lord, we need to pause and we need to ask you for our salvation. We need to ask to be saved. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would just remind us that we're all sinners saved by your grace. And that we all constantly need to be reminded of this and announce our dependence upon you. And we thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.